Many great movements of the Spirit are recorded in the annals of the Church. Some have started great works, while others have changed the course of history. Few, however, have had the impact of one sermon delivered by a fisherman newly empowered by the Spirit of God. Welcome to the Bible Study Hour, a radio and internet broadcast with Dr. James Boyce, preparing you to think and act biblically. The lasting result of the filling of the Holy Spirit that day in Jerusalem was not merely the performance of great miracles or of speaking in tongues. It was the emboldening of witnesses like Peter to proclaim the life-changing power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Join Dr. Boyce now as he examines a sermon that would lead 3,000 souls to ask that most important of questions, Brothers, what shall we do to be saved? Our sermon is on the second chapter of the book of Acts, beginning with verse 14 through verse 41, where we have a record of what the Apostle Peter preached at Pentecost. It's that sermon, the sermon preached at Pentecost, and not the one that I'm about to bring to you that won 3,000 souls. I wish it were otherwise. I wish I could say that I had preached on this or some other occasion, and the Lord blessed it in such a way that thousands of people responded to the preaching of the gospel and came to faith in Christ. But not only have I not had that experience, I doubt very much if anyone else has had it either. From time to time, I, I read accounts of revivals in which the Spirit of God works in a strong way, and many people are moved as the Word of God is preached, and many hundreds respond in faith. And yet, in all those accounts, I've not read of any occasion when a sermon was so blessed by the Holy Spirit that 3,000 people who before that were lost in sin and blinded in their ignorance far from God and far from faith in Jesus Christ turned from sin, responded to Him, and entered the company of God's people within the church. And yet that's what happened at Pentecost as God blessed this first sermon of the Christian era, the sermon preached by Peter as he stood up on Pentecost to explain what God was doing and inaugurate the church age. Now, it's what we should expect, of course. Perhaps we wouldn't expect this powerful a result, but certainly we would expect some result and a striking one. We saw as we began our study of the book of Acts that Jesus had told them that they were going to receive power, these apostles of his, and that after they received power, the power of the Holy Spirit, they were going to be his witnesses. And they were going to start as his witnesses in Jerusalem, and then they were going to go out from there into all the known world. This is what Peter does. This is the beginning at Jerusalem as the Holy Spirit comes. And then we saw when we we're looking last week at the first verses of the second chapter that the entire emphasis upon this filling of the apostles with the Holy Spirit was upon their speaking. I pointed out that sometimes we get off base on that. And people look at this miracle that happened at the same time in which those who heard, each heard in their own tongue, that is, as the apostles went pouring out of the upper room into the streets and began to talk to people that they met there in the streets of Jerusalem. That certainly was a great miracle and an exciting one, and one that uh, the apostle Peter used in a powerful way as an introduction to the sermon he was about to preach about Jesus. But it's not the essence 
of Pentecost. It was a miracle, it was a sign, it was important, but the important thing, the most important thing, is that those who were filled by the Holy Spirit began to be Christ's witnesses. The same thing that Jesus had told them in this version of the Great Commission they would be. You find that, as I pointed out last week, every time in Acts that you come to a reference to the filling with the Holy Spirit. Whenever the Holy Spirit fills the people of God, they demonstrate that filling, not by doing miracles, but by testifying to Jesus Christ, and that's what God blesses. Well, here, as I say, we have Peter doing that. First of all, this is a great biblical sermon, is it not? The Apostle Peter didn't have the New Testament when he stood up to preach on this occasion, but he had a great biblical book. He had the Old Testament. Not only did he have it, he knew it. I would suggest, I suggested it when we were studying the end of chapter 1, that he'd even spent these previous days studying it, probably together with the other apostles and the early Christians who were gathered with them and were there on Pentecost. The Lord had started them on this track. He had begun to explain the nature of his ministry and his work by referring to these Old Testament texts, saying that they were foolish and slow of heart to believe if they didn't see that the things that had happened in his ministry had been fulfillments of what God had prophesied so many years before. We know that on the occasion when he accompanied the Emmaus disciples on their way back to their hometown, he began with Moses and, and the prophets and expounded to them in all the writings, that is, all three sections of the Old Testament, the things that concerned himself. So Jesus had begun to teach them how to do this, and Peter undoubtedly during these days of waiting for Pentecost had searched the scriptures himself. And now suddenly Pentecost came, and the apostle Peter, who was never a person to be shy, seized the opportunity, leader as he was, often a foolish one, but not on this occasion. He seized the opportunity and he, he stood up and he began to preach and he drew from this great store of Old Testament texts, that which was to be the substance of his sermon. It's interesting when we turn to Peter's sermon that he has not so much a, a case of having great points, numerous points, as he has numerous texts. He doesn't just take one text and expound it. He has three great texts and he expounds each of them, weaving them together in a really biblical whole. Now, you know what they are. The first text is from the second chapter of Joel. It's the verses that end that chapter, the second of the three chapters of that minor prophet, verses 28 through 32 in our version of the Bible. Joel is, uh, is a rather gloomy prophecy. It was written on the occasion of a great disaster that had come upon Israel. There had been a locust plague and it was devastating and it wiped out everything, every green thing in the whole land. And in a economy, a rural agricultural economy as that was, it was a very serious thing. It, it was a question of life and death for most people. And Joel begins to talk about that and instead of saying as some of us might say under those circumstances, well, every cloud has a silver lining, it's going to get better, don't worry. Uh, Joel says, no, as a matter of fact, it's going to get worse. That's only a symbol of the final judgment to come. So it's in a book like that that this prophecy occurs, a very serious, gloomy book. And yet in the middle of it, Joel begins to talk about a blessing that is to come to the people in the latter days. He says God is going to restore the years that the locusts have eaten. There's going to be a, a time when God blesses you that you'll be satisfied. 
And it's at the end of that turn in the prophecy as he begins to speak comforting words that these great verses occur. He says, in the latter days, that is beyond the time of national physical blessing, I'm going to pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And he gives the words that the apostle Peter picks up on this occasion. Peter referred to that text because it was the prophecy of Pentecost. And he said with that kind of graphic urgency, that ability to take the present moment and to link it to the Old Testament prophecy that we see exhibited by Jesus Christ and by other biblical preachers, with that great ability to take those two, he welds them together and he says of that experience of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and the speaking in tongues and the blessing that was to come on this day, this is the thing about which Joel has spoken. And so he uses that great text. A little later on in his sermon, he quotes from Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. The verses written by David, the great king of Israel. They were very important to the early Christian preachers, the apostle Paul also. They were significant because although this is quite obviously a sermon written about David and it contains statements that can apply quite literally to David, toward the end of the psalm it has this interesting passage in which David says, you will not abandon me to the grave, you will not let your holy one see decay. David, at this point, must have been a prophet looking forward to the Messiah, who, because he, unlike David, was the Holy One, would not see decay. He would die, but his body wouldn't decay in the grave. And so he would be raised again incorruptible. Peter refers to that and says that is also a prophecy of what has happened in our time in the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, whom you all knew and know. And then finally, uh, Peter quotes from the 110th Psalm, verse 1. This is the verse of the Old Testament that is most quoted in the New. It's quoted about 25 or 30 times, sometimes very directly, like this, word for word, and other times indirectly. The book of Hebrews, for example, refers to this verse at least three times and perhaps a few other times indirectly. Here is a verse in which, again, David is writing and says, the Lord, that is God, Jehovah, said to my Lord, in the Hebrew, the word is Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus referred to this himself in an incident recorded in Matthew 22, saying, how could David refer to a descendant of his as his Lord? How could he say that God called his Lord, Lord? Well, if he were merely a descendant of David, uh, a mere human being, that would be impossible. But the Messiah was not to be a mere human being. He was to be more than that. He was to be the God-man, the one whom God would exalt above every person and being in heaven and in earth and give him a name that's above every name, allowing him to sit at his right hand until he makes all his enemies a footstool for his feet. This text Peter picks up in this sermon and applies quite rightly to Jesus. Now, it's interesting to think about this sermon, particularly in its structure and its emphasis. Where is the emphasis of this sermon? Well, one thing we can do in a, in a kind of objective way is to just count up the number of verses that are given to quotations of the Old Testament and put them over against the number of verses that are here as exposition. You do that, it's a little hard to know 
how to apply some verses. For example, verse 16 is not a quotation of the Old Testament, but it's an introduction of the quotation that comes from the Old Testament. If you put the introductions along with the quotations that they introduce, then you have 13 verses given over to Old Testament citation. And over against that, you have 11 verses of exposition plus two verses of application, the conclusion that comes at the very end. So at the most, you have 13 verses versus 13 verses. You see, it's just about evenly balanced, and perhaps the emphasis even falls upon the Old Testament citation. The basis of the sermon, and the most important thing, is the Word of God. You say, well, why is that important? It's important for this reason. It is the Word of God that God blesses. It's not that He blesses the Word of the preacher. Oh, he may use the words of the preacher or the word of the witness as a vehicle. God hasn't promised to bless that. What God has promised to do is bless his word. He said, my word that goes out of my mouth will accomplish that which I please, and I will prosper in the thing whereunto I send it. Sometimes you and I speak and God prospers it, and we rejoice in that, but God doesn't promise to do that. God has promised to bless his word, and so his word, the actual words of Scripture, have to be the basis of our exposition. Now secondly, I want you to see that this sermon is Christ-centered. That follows from the first point, does it not? If the sermon is biblical, and if the Bible is about Jesus Christ, if he's its heart and substance, then a biblical sermon is inevitably going to be a Christ-centered one. It's interesting to notice what 